Well, I'm going to ask that we could go ahead and fill these two middle sections unless there's some reason that compels you to need to be on the outside. That's perfectly fine. Just want to make it easier for us to get mics to you and for Jim to be able to focus on us as a body rather than being spread all out. I'm going to pray. Let me just uh, encourage you again that uh, we would like to have as many different questions as possible. There's no question that's a bad one. Um, Feel free uh, to raise your hand where you are, Mike. Graham and I will have these roving mice. We'll bring them to you. Would love for you just to say your name. Jim's met a number of you, but he's still obviously getting to know, uh, so that will be helpful uh, and be helpful to you as well because I suspect not all of you know everybody either. So uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we are thankful for so many things that... You are doing in our household and in our church. We praise you that though we have certainly been stretched by this process of a succession plan and waiting on you for your will to be made plain, you have helped us guard the peace and welfare of our land of grace. We pray that that would continue as we have this very important day of these question and answer times and the service. We pray for Jim right now, particularly that you would, as we have been praying, grant him a sense of being as relaxed as you can be, give him clarity of thought as he responds to questions and the ability to communicate what's in his heart with each one. And, Lord, we pray that you will have your way from start to finish in this as we continue to wait upon you uh, for your plan. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So, hand up, and we'll bring a mic to you, and you can, there you go. Let's not waste any time. Jim, Steve Pilling, we've met. It's been a pleasure to meet with you as little as we have so far. But uh, my question is uh, regarding music in the church Mm -hmm. and your thoughts on that, um, along with uh, what you feel will be your involvement as lead pastor teacher in the music ministry. Good question. I mean, music is obviously something that has divided the church over the past 20 years in a really unique way. So... My philosophy of music is that we are coming together, and and whoever's on stage, their main goal is to play one instrument, and that's us. So we want to play the congregation. We want to play music that the congregation can sing. So often, when you have uh, when you have talented musicians, that's going to mean they're going to they're going to hold back a little bit. I, I know in, in our context, we have a, a musician who can hit notes that most of us could never hit, and he never does that because his goal is for us to sing. But we're not just singing anything, right? We're, we're coming together to praise God, to, um, to sing biblical truths about him, about the gospel. And when we come together, we want to sing in a way that... Uh, so this kind of bleeds into something else that I, I have what I call the contextualization continuum. Um, if you think about contextualization, you have on, on one side, when you drift 
to the extremes. On one side, you have under-contextualization. On one side, you have over-contextualization. And obviously, in the, in the middle, nobody's perfect, but we're shooting for appropriate contextualization. So if you, if you go too far to one side, to the under-contextualized side, you may have a church that is very uh, faithful, but it, it's, it operates in a way that's very hard to access. And so you might have uh, faithful teaching, but a small number of people. Uh, and so they would suffer in fruit in terms of quantity, not quality. You go to the other side of the extreme and you have, you have churches where context kind of dictates everything that we do. And, and music would be one of the main ways this plays out. They're playing secular songs, wanting to be so in line with the context that they would gain favor with the audience in a way that suffers fruit, not in terms of quantity as much as quality on that extreme. So we want to be culturally appropriate. We want to sing songs that uh, are singable. Um, you know, I think we want to sing songs that people know, ideally. And so uh, there, there's a, you know, that can be songs from the 1500s. It can be songs from the 2000s. Now, I think there's a reason that the songs in our hymn books are there. You know, they've, they've, they've made it two, three, four, five hundred years because they're faithful and they're singable. I don't know how many songs are produced every year now. Let's say there are 500 songs, Christian songs produced in a year, probably two, I think, each year merit being sung in a church. And so it takes people with wisdom uh, and knowledge to be able to discern what are, the, what are these new songs that merit being brought into the church and which ones just need to stay on the radio. Because most of, the songs in our hymns are, are made to be sung. Most of the songs on the radio are made to be heard. And there's a big difference. So, um, you know, what is my role in that? Um, I'm not very musically inclined. I'm thankful for the people around us who are. And so I, I tend to process with the people who are more musical, more knowledgeable, and, uh, and process usually a little more reactively. You know, as we worship together, I'll process with them. Say, it sounded like everybody was singing during this song. That was great. Uh, it didn't sound like people were singing here. Let's kind of process why. Uh, this, this song was rich. Uh, you know, there's a line in this song maybe we need to talk about as we continue to evaluate the place of the song in our worship. Um, and then sometimes I'll just bring songs to the music person and whoever's in charge and say, what, you know, I, I like this song. Tell me what you think about it and, and we'll process. So uh, kind of in summary, we, we need to be singing the Bible. It needs to be faithful. It needs to be singable. And, uh, and we need to do it in a way that everybody knows it. So I, you know, I wouldn't want to come in and play new songs every week. There's a, place for song, there's a place for new songs, but we don't want to do it in a way where everybody shows up and we never know what we're singing. Does that answer your question? Okay. Good morning. I'm Tom Haney. Hey, Tom. And my question is, do you support Israel? Do I support Israel? Yes. That's a very complex question. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, okay, do you support it in their struggle to be a country and to defend themselves against the evil surrounding them and as opposed to saying, no, they're wrong to want right. to live in the Holy Land? That's a good question. So my, uh, my grandfather, actually, it's really interesting, was very high up in U.S. intelligence and a part of the decision-making process that brought Israel about. And so politically speaking, secularly speaking, it's, you know, they've, their hope was that we bring Israel into play. And, um, and as we do, it will 
kind of water down the influences in the Middle East. That obviously is not what happened. Um, so I have two thoughts that I, I, I try to balance in tension here. I do believe that God chose Israel and that we, as the church, are the new spiritual Israel. But, you know, in Romans uh Romans 11, it does seem like there's some, there, there is something that God is really going to do for ethnic Jews at the end of time. So, you know, there, I, I, I do support Israel sometimes more because I'm more in line with them than I am the surrounding area. But I don't, um, I don't negate the fact that we are the, new, the spiritual Israel now. That, that we are God's people, that it, it's not an, an and or, it is an expansion of. So in the Old Testament, you have this remnant. This is what Romans uh, 9, 10, 11 is basically saying. You have this remnant of faithful Jews in the Old Testament, and they're, they're in a context where many of God's people don't believe anymore, but you have this core that does. And so Jeremiah 31 is promising a new covenant, and in that new covenant, there won't be this, this smaller unbelieving group inside of a larger believing group. There's, that remnant is going to be taken into the new covenant, and we as Gentiles, we grafted in. By the way, this is largely what um, makes me a Baptist, but that's, we can make that another question. Um, but we have this, as Gentiles, we are grafted in. And we are the new Israel. So it's not, an, it's not an instead of Israel. It's a continuing of the promise. So I, I guess I wouldn't exalt the country above the spiritual Israel that is the church. But I am cognizant of uh, what God seems like he still wants to do there and, and just general human suffering in the region that, that we have uh, a role in the church of pointing out. My name is Diane Wallace. Um, Our daughter and son-in-law have four small children, and he is a pastor. And I have watched up close how hard they have to work at protecting their marriage and their family life. Have you and Angela discussed how it will look for you to be a full-time teaching pastor and talked about ways that you can be intentional about those kinds of things to protect your family? That is a great question. I'm curious, how old are your grandkids and two eight-year-olds. Okay, two ten-year-olds and two eight, two sets of twins. Okay, great. So I have a ten-year-old boy named Turner, an eight-year-old boy named Collins. As of last week, a seven-year-old girl named Ivy. I didn't adopt her last week. She turned seven last week. That's good clarification. Um, and then a three-year-old boy, James. And um, it, it, it's hard. It, it's hard to balance all. Um, that a pastor has to balance. Even in this transition, I was telling some people, we brought, my my seven-year-old is our emotional child. So I'm going to give you a longer answer just to kind of let you into my life a little bit more. Uh, So we were sitting right over there, and we told him on the plane down what was happening. We'd already processed with my 10-year-old, and we kind of went in phases, moving down in age range. And, uh, And so, you know, he really hears, the church is taking me away from my friends. And so we're processing that with him. And, and certainly I never want my children or my wife to ever feel like the church is taking daddy away from me. And I want them to see the blessing that the church is. And so I've tried to make Sunday mornings 
fun for my family. I, I'll take two or three kids early with me. We'll go get breakfast burritos from McDonald's, which is, is a huge treat for them. I'm glad they get excited about things that only cost $1. <laughs> And, uh, and in fact, so today ma- mama's taking the kids to church and, and my boys were complaining because mama doesn't take us for breakfast burritos. <laughs> and we set up and break down church in a middle school. So they'll help me, you know, hammer the flags in the ground and they argue over who gets to be Thor because the hammer is really big. And, uh, but when we were sitting over there and I, I leaned over to Collins and I said, well, buddy, what do you think? What do you think about this church? And he, he looked at me and goes, I well, what, what don't you like? And he said, we've been standing too long. <laughs> I know what he's really thinking. I was like, buddy, we stand in our church. Yeah, but we only stand for two songs and we've been standing for three. <laughs> and then he, later on, he looked at Angela and said, mama, I hate this church. And so we're all right, we'll just see what happens. And I got up and I preached and I, and I got back down and, uh, and I had this little tap behind me and I, and I look over and he goes, and so, you know, I think they need to see that the church is something that God has given all of us. And we all, as a family, have a, have a part to play in the church. It isn't just daddy does the church thing and they need to kind of follow or even keep up. Um, I, you know, I, I try to really balance my, I mean, there's just no way to always be done with the work. I mean, and many of you have jobs where you, you can't just clock in and clock out. So I've tried to do things like when I come home, I try to put my phone in my room um, and I, ch- I have to check it, but you know, they don't constantly hopefully see me on my phone. The phone's the big one. I mean, the phone I think has changed the job of the pastor more than maybe anything else in the past hundred years. Um, you know, but I want, them to, I want them to see all the great parts of the church and some of the challenging parts of the church I want to process honestly as a family, as is age appropriate and then, um, you know, the, the harder part is my wife, who, you know, on a Sunday morning is a single mom, um, and it, it's really hard. And, you know, I, I'm at the elders' meetings and going early to set up to things, and, and there have been seasons when that's gone fine and seasons where that's been a real challenge. You know, like anything, I think the, the main thing that I can do is to foster um, good communication between Angela and myself and, and know, you know the kinds of areas that we've struggled in in the past to know where I've failed. Um, she would say, it's, it's often, I say often, probably 100% of the time, you think about the thing that drew you to your spouse, the thing that you really liked the most when you were dating and engaged, and that's probably the thing that irritates you the most now <laughs> about your spouse. And my, my wife would say she was very drawn to my driven nature when we were dating and engaged. And, and then we got married, and she's drowning in my wake. <laughs> so I, I know that. And so now I have to foster a conversation regularly. How are we doing? I know I can tend to run faster than the family can keep up. Am I running too fast? Uh, are there things that I need to keep on my radar? And then with my kids, I, my favorite time of the day is just lying in bed with them and, and talking. And I'll ask them, you know, is are there ways I can be a better daddy? And they will give me very honest answers. <laughs> Things like, you should jump on the trampoline with us more. Well, I, that, tomorrow we're jumping on the trampoline. So communication, just really trying to hear them. I can't assume that I'll always see everything. And, uh, and their perception is my reality. So whether I agree with how they feel or not is really irrelevant. They feel how they feel, and that's what I have to address. But it's hard. 
Ryan Cunningham. Um, you've, I think, given You're friends a good, with Juddy, right? Yes. He told me to look out for you. Yep. He's a good dude. Uh, He's a good dude. He was in my wedding. Um, so you've kind of given a little bit of an intro to this, but maybe going more into children's ministry. Um, hmm. How do you understand, I think you probably have a good understanding of what we're doing here, but, um, you know, what's your uh, philosophy on children's ministry and different age groups and things like that? Great question. I mean, ultimately, the church is coming alongside the parents to help the parents do what the parents are called to do. Church, youth, church, children's ministry is not, uh, we're not outsourcing the, the job God has given us as parents to the church. The church does want to come along and effectively resource the parents. And so in some, in some cases, yes, that's going to be uh, some sort of Sunday program or Wednesday programs, depends on, on the church, where we're going to come uh, and, and the church is going to do the teaching, but hopefully in a way where the parents know what's going on. In our, in our church, on Sundays, we use the Gospel Project. I don't know if that's familiar. Do, I've seen, do you all use the Gospel Project here? Some people are familiar with it. And so that is a three-year plan uh, to go through the whole Bible in age-appropriate ways. And so every three years, it starts over, and you know they'll, they'll have cards they take home, and these cards tell us the lesson and give us as parents questions we can ask to engage with the lesson that they've been taught. Um, so that, that's kind of at a younger age. In, in our church, we have that on Sunday mornings, and then we have a children's thing on Wednesday nights. And, uh, and you know, there, there is value just to helping create friendships between, uh, between the children of believers. I, I always say the number one predictor of how a child is going to do when they go on to college is who they hang out with. That's the number one predictor of how they're going to do spiritually. Who are they surrounding themselves with? So there is a real place for us as a church to want to bring our children together and foster those kinds of friendships. And then certainly as you get into youth age, um, you know, I used to be one of the people that, that and, I, and I appreciate if anybody else has this view, I used, I used to be kind of anti-youth ministry um, and, uh, and because I, I saw that it was the parents' job. And I remember sitting with a, an RUF minister who's about 15 years older than me, and he looked at me and said, yeah, I used to think like you, Jim, until I had high schoolers. <laughs> and I, I don't have high schoolers yet, but I'm beginning to appreciate what he was saying, uh, just that there is, there's value in having other people come in and say the same kinds of things to our kids. And, you know, in, in high school years, sometimes there is more of a distance between, again, I don't have high schoolers, but I've, I've been around families that do a lot, and I've been around those high schoolers. And, and there can be a distance in a way where it's just really helpful to have somebody, let's say a, a, a college-age male or an RTS student or, or, or someone who feel like their calling is to be a youth minister, come in and love these children and, and reinforce the things that we're teaching them. So, in short, the church's role is to resource the parents and what the parents are called to do. Hey, Jim. Uh, my name is Jason Porata, and my question is: How do you? Uh, what's your position on women um, serving in the deaconship and being able to um, read God's word on stage in positions of leadership within the church? So this this is something. We've talked a lot about the elders and, and myself. Um, well, let, let me explain my church, and, and then the way we do deacons is slightly different than the way you do deacons. And at the end of the day, I also want to say this is an issue that I would submit to elders on it, it, within, you know, within the kinds of disagreements we're talking about. 
So the word, the Greek word, obviously diakonos just means servant. Servant is what is a deacon is called to do. Um, we see, we, you know, we see glimpses of this all throughout the Bible. We can go all the way back to Moses and Jethro, Jethro working to create a system where Moses could be freed up to do what Moses was called to do. And of course, that's foreshadowing Acts 6 when the, uh, the apostles, the disciples were swamped with specific issues, particularly the, the feeding of the Hellenistic widows. And so they found deacons, servants, to then step in and help this service-oriented ministry so that the disciples could be freed up to minister primarily through preaching and prayer. Uh, then you get into you know, Titus and First Timothy, and we see the qualifications of an elder and the qualifications of the deacon. Uh, and, and so up until this point, uh, you see a calling primarily to serve. And so I, I don't see anything biblically that would prevent a woman from serving in the church. And I think in many ways they're more equipped in a lot of the, the areas of service. And so then you see uh, the qualifications of an elder and the qualifications of a deacon. And it's, it's interesting what's going on. It's, here are the qualifications of a deacon, which are very similar to that of an elder. And then it says, and their wives. All right? But the word there is women. It's, there's no, the word is gune. It's not, it's not wives, it's women. And so we've had to discern, what do we do with this word women? And, and so a lot of translations have said, and their wives. The word deaconess didn't exist at that point. So that it makes sense if they're talking about the position of deaconess, that they would just use woman. Um, we know from Josephus's writing that early, early on, first century, there historically, and I'm not saying this just because it happened historically doesn't mean that it was biblical, but we know first century there were deaconesses very early on. Uh, and I also think it's really interesting that in the, it, when, when Paul is stating the qualifications of a deacon, that he says, and their wives need to be this thing, but he never does that for the elder, which leads me to think he's talking about a deaconess, a position of, of Service. So in our context, we have deacons and deaconesses. Um, so we, we have deacons that handle everything back there. We have a deacon of ordinances. We have a deaconess of weddings, a, a woman who oversees weddings in the church, uh, a deaconess of funerals, a deaconess of meals who oversees meals for those who need them. And, and we, we don't feel like that compromises our complementarianism in any way. Now that I have gotten to... Um, know your church better. Uh, your deacons operate a little differently than ours. Yours do have a measure of spiritual authority, um, and, and which creates a different dynamic. Our, our deacons never meet together. They, you know, they, they have a job. They report to an elder. They faithfully carry it out. So, um, you know, if, if I step into this context and the elders, um, and the elders don't, you know, this is their view and they want to continue that, I, I would submit to the elders there is a measure of spiritual authority given to the deacons here that, that makes it just a slightly different dynamic. But if all things equal, and the elders and I have talked a lot about this. This is probably the one place I think that there might be a disagreement. But I think one that, that we, um, I think an amicable disagreement that we're all wanting to move forward on. Uh, I would submit to this church's view. But what I've described is what I think is the, uh, what, I, what I think the Bible teaches. Um, and then in addition, you, you mentioned on stage, in our context, we will have uh, women read the scripture for, for that service. And, and you know, I, I think the question when we look at the Bible, it isn't what can women not do? 
And I don't hear you asking that. And, and I, so I don't want to put those words in your mouth, but I, I, to communicate my heart. You know, when we read the Bible and look at the church, we want to see what are all the ways women are uniquely gifted in the church. Because when, when God made man in his own image, he, I think, very brilliantly concluded that he couldn't contain all that he wanted to in a man. He communicates certain things about his nature through a man, but many other things through women that, that generally aren't communicated through man. And so we look at women in the church, and I think we need to look at how are, how, what are the ways that we can be investing in women uh, and resourcing women to carry out the mission that God has called them to do. I'm Miguel Benitez. Um, so my question, best as you can tell, I know you still have to get to know our church better, but if you found yourself in the Orlando area, not as a pastor, would you and your family be members here, and why or why not? That's a great question. Yes. I mean, I, I, I grew up um, at First Pres, and I love those people. love David Swanson, Case Thorpe, Lee Swanson. They have been dear friends to me and, and, and real guide and help in many ways. I'm not Presbyterian, so I wouldn't go there. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been, <laughs> been going to RTS. I've just finished, but I've been going to RTS for some time. And I've always been aware of this church, either through Michael, before that. Um, uh, who was the youth minister that was in my Baptist, your youth minister years ago? Colby, Colby, that's right. Juddy. I mean, so there have, there's, there's been a lot of intersection and uh, and a few years ago, got to know Kurt. And, and I, I do know the church layout fairly well. Um, there are some churches that would on paper in this community fit very well um, within my theology. But, but I see God doing something here uh, that's unique. I think y'all are ecclesiologically um, platformed to do something that hinders other other reformed, uh, Christ-loving churches in this area. So in a long, longer answer than you probably want, yes, this is probably the church we would go to. Hi, I'm Dennis Mudge, uh, leader of the Mudge clan. And um, hey, we first came to the church when it was in the old RTS building. So we've been here a long time. Um, I have a question that you could take a long time or a short time to answer. I'm looking more just to see how you answer. You don't have to go a long time. Young leadership, established old eldership. How would you like or how do you plan to accomplish unity? Between young leadership and older eldership. Well, let me first say, uh, I'll probably make a comment about this in my sermon today, but our church is very, very young where I am now. By God's grace, we've been getting older. Um, but I think the average, uh, the average age in our church for a while was like 13 and a half. <laughs> and, you know, when somebody would walk in with gray hair and a Bible, it was like all we could do to not, not weird them out. We were just, what can we do to get you to stay? We, we need you. And so you're, you're getting me at an interesting season where I, we've been praying for men over 50 to be elders in our church, just praying for that. So, um, admittedly, I look at older elders and specifically empty nesters, people with lots of experience, and I get really excited (laughs) 
to have that kind of wisdom in, in our context. I think we've chosen the people God has for Grace Bible Church, but we, most of them are in my season of life, swamped with work, swamped with kids, very little bandwidth outside of that. So um, I've seen the challenges of younger leadership. I, I think God has a, a plurality of elders for a reason. He wants there to be different giftings, different mindsets, different ages, different ethnicities to bring different perspectives because none of us is Jesus. So we need that plurality. So I get kind of excited. I mean, I, as long as we're unified on what the ultimate goal is and where our authority is, which I definitely think we are, I appreciate that, they're, that this leadership is older than what I'm working with now. Hi, my name is Colleen Andre. You already met my husband, Jeffrey, before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so my question is on behalf of somebody else, but it applies as well um, since I'm a counselor. So you already talked about some of your counseling experience with you and your wife, but um, they're interested in knowing your perspective of the role of counseling um, with the ministry of the church and if you have any strong convictions like biblical counseling or only pastor's counseling. That is a good question. I have been really blessed by counselors in my life, both from counseling my wife and me. Uh, we have counselors, because there is a place for, uh, obviously, pastors do counseling. Um, but I, one of my favorite classes in seminary was pastoral counseling with Jim Cofield. And, uh, and, and through his teaching has really helped me to understand my job is to know what what I counsel, and when I hand off to somebody who has more time and more abilities and more training than I do. So I, I've been blessed by counselors in our church to help me understand certain very complex issues. How do I wade into them? How do I discern? And then at what point do I hand off to somebody who's, who's more trained? This is what they do. So I, I, I'm really thankful for the counselors in my church. And one of, you know, one of the things I would want to do very quickly in, in, this, in this church is discern who are the counselors that I want to get to know that I can get advice from and who I can refer to? Does that answer your question? Good morning, Jim. Um, Justin Keller, New York Review of Books. Monday, so, yeah. yes. uh, so I'm wondering, along those same lines uh, with the New York Review of Books, what are you reading and how do you decide what to read? That is a good question. Well, two weeks ago, I, uh, I was freed up to read what I want to read again. <laughs> I, I finally finished RTS after 10 years there. Um, I, I, it's been really exciting just to read what I want to read. So I currently, yesterday I started a book called Slave Religion. I don't know, are you familiar with it? Uh, I, someone, I did, I'd never heard of it, so it was Justin Taylor or somebody posted the top five most helpful books and that, was on, that one stuck out to me the most. Um, and I'm only 80 pages into it, but I, I'm, it was fascinating to, to learn about. So this book is te- telling a lot about African religion. Have you read it? Okay. It's fascinating how, how African religion came into uh, the New World and why it was quickly eradicated in the United States, but, but that wasn't the case in all the rest of the New World. So... Anyway, it's really fascinating. I'm reading that. I just bought a book. There's a new book that came out. I can't remember the title on it. Started it, but kind of talking about the Beth, Bethel movement and Bill Johnson, um, kind of the new charismatic, the new health and wealth prosperity gospel. Um, I'm, I've been reading a book on succession. Um, kind of trying to gain. Kurt gave it to me. Gain some wisdom. Um, 
And then I just, I love the, the New York Review books is really fun and helpful. And a few magazines that I subscribe to. And maybe a Florida State, you know, sports page or two. Sorry, sorry. Hey, Jim. My name is Steve Allman. Um, my question, he almost stole it. Um, what are your three or four favorite books? Wow. Three or four favorite. I'm sure 10 minutes after I say this, I'm going to want to amend it. Um, Desiring God and Knowing God were just really impactful in my life. Um, uh, Rosaria Butterfield's first book, or first, well, first, I guess it's her first Christian book, is it uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert has been really impactful in my understanding Lots of things um, about same-sex attraction and that lifestyle that I didn't understand. Um, three or four favorites. You know, I, I've had to really, RTS forced me to wade through Bavink and his systematic theologies that was heavy lifting, but I, I was really blessed to be able to do that. So we're already over four. Um, D.A. Carson... Uh, has a book called um, Conf- Confessions of an Ordinary Pastor, I think is what it's called. It's a book about his, excuse me? Memoir. Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, thank you. Th- that book uh, about his dad doing, taking on a very difficult ministry in French Quebec has, it's one of, the, it's one of those books I say I'm going to reread every year. It hasn't quite happened, but, I, but it's one of those that I would like to reread every year. It just to, it, it, He puts things in perspective really well. What we're ultimately here to do as, as Christians, but specifically as pastors as well. Hi, Jay. My name is Da. My tell, question sorry, tell me your name again. Da, D-A. Da. Good to meet you. Nice meeting you. My question is, what makes you feel loved as a pastor and what doesn't? What makes me feel loved and what doesn't? You know, love comes in a lot of different forms. Um, it, obviously, it's nice to be complimented, um, but I, I have people in my church who will tell me not just what I want to hear, but what I need to hear, but they, they do it in a, in a really loving way, and, and which makes me feel loved. Um, right now in our house, we're, we're, we're just trying <laughs> to get everybody to understand that whatever comes out of our mouth, we need it to be encouraging, like encouraging speech, Ephesians 4, encouraging, we're building up here. And so uh, recently I was disciplining my eight-year-old, same one that was here with me. And uh, right now for discipline, we have a park near us, and he will make the older two run laps. (laughs) That's how we're punishing right now. So you didn't do this. You're you're not obeying, and you're going to run a lap. And he looked at me and said, well, that's not very encouraging. (laughs) I said, well, buddy, encouraging speech isn't always just things that make you feel good immediately, but sometimes they're just things you really need to hear because it is building you up. So... You know, I, I feel really loved when, when, certainly when friends can appreciate something that maybe goes well that I worked really hard on, but I, I, I certainly appreciate those who push also uh, and challenge. But, you know, you have some that just push and challenge and they're irritating because you don't feel like they love you, but you have others that you really love you and, and they push and challenge and I, I need people like that in my life. My name's Corey uh, Brewer. 
I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, every generation has their own social, um, cultural types of events that happen. How do you see protecting the church from being influenced by secular, uh, secular uh, culture um, opposed to the church itself informing the members and protecting the congregation, the church, from those secular influences? You know, often it's, it's those in the church. I feel like there's a few people in the church who are just really good at discerning those kind of things. And often you know, they're the ones that I can think of a few people in my church who are really gifted to see these things often before I do. Um, you know, I think it goes, a, a, there, there's some overlap here with that contextualization thing that I'm, I'm talking about. I think we have to know the church and know our context really well before we can even assess what it is that's creeping in and, and what's not. So we have to do good cultural exegesis to understand what's going on around us, to understand in, in most of the things that we disagree with, there's, there's, there's a nugget of truth. There's a nugget of good that maybe has been perverted or misguided in some way. And to appreciate what's good, but then not only that it's wrong, but why it's wrong. And I, and I think largely this happens in, in fellowship, in smaller groups, more than it is necessarily going to happen on Sunday morning. Um, but there is a place on Sunday morning to, to talk about things um, in our culture that we need to be really aware of. And so, I, I, I mean, I can think of a few things in our church that we're kind of processing things about the culture uh, in a town like Oxford that, that, you know, that we're just trying to discern at what level are we, we just live here and this is going to be part of our life. And at what level is that influencing us so much that it's compromising what we're called to do as Christians? So I don't think my answer is, is super uh, tangible, but, I'm, but in general terms, that's, that's how I go. But we have to know. We have to know the Bible and we have to know our culture before we can begin to assess what you're asking. Is that helpful? Hey, Jim. Hey, Jason again. Uh, you mentioned in the get to know you thing that we did in the other room about Matt Chandler and sort of his influence on you. So I was just curious, um, you had also mentioned planting churches, what your feelings were uh, in terms of the vision for the church and potentially the Acts 29 network of being a part of that. Uh, if you're just influenced by the work that that network has done or if you see us operating within that network or another network, um, yeah. So as you know, one of, you, Kurt, you had, was it, were there nine objectives on the Nehemiah plan? Or, there's nine. And the one, that, the, the last objective was affiliation. And so, so I'm coming in and I'm speaking into something that the Lord is already doing in this church. And so, when it, you know, there are a lot of networks, I think, that we could, we could faithfully work with. Um, I do think Acts 29 is, prob- in my opinion, the, the best alignment for this church. It doesn't have to be necessarily the only alignment. But, I, you know, it's interesting to me that you have planted two churches and you're about to plant a third through Winston. And all of them are aligned with Acts 29. Juddy, the one up in the northeast, I'm, just, I'm not as aware of. And then, of course, Winston. Um, it says something about your DNA that the church planters coming out of this church are joining Acts 29. I hear from this church a desire to be a church that not only uh, brings in aspiring church planters and, and equips them, but a church that also has a proactive plan to be church planting in this community. 
And so when, when we start talking that way, the organization that does the best job in that right now, in my opinion, is Acts 29. Uh, our church in Oxford is in the assessment process right now. I've gotten to know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if these terms mean a lot. There was Acts 29 1.0 and 2.0. And, so, and that's, that's not my terminology. That's something that they, they use. And so they have, um, there were some good things Mark Driscoll brought about in the Acts 29 1.0, but we all know there were a lot of challenges that he brought at the same time. And I do think uh, Matt Chandler and Steve Timmis now uh, have done a lot to bring more grace into Acts 29, more nuance into what they do. And, and they, per- percentage-wise, as far as I'm aware, they have a higher percentage of church plants succeeding than anybody else that, that, I've, that I've been around and studied. Um, so in my opinion, Acts 29 is, is a good fit for this church because of what God seems to already be doing in this church, not necessarily just because I like uh, what, some things that are going on. Hey, Wendy. Hi, Wendy Yarbrough. Um, I was curious how you and Angela landed in Reformed Faith, if it was together or separate and what that looked like for you. So she grew up in a small very traditional Baptist church in the doors all the time, um, and uh, and she grew up just hearing Reformed theology is bad. Calvinism is bad. We don't talk about it. We we get to parts of Romans and we just fast forward. <laughs> and and she would say the first time she was really challenged by it was when she was doing ministry as an intern with Campus Crusade for Christ at Old Miss, and they wanted to walk through Romans, so she started walking through Romans and got to Romans eight. And thought, man, I, I, I've never really studied this before. And, you know, the interesting thing to me with her background is what the, they didn't come in and try to teach their, this is what she would say, actually. She didn't grow up in an environment where they taught a different understanding of predestination and calling. She grew up in an environment that just ignored it. So then she began to appreciate the way the Reformed faith taught it, and it made a lot of sense. And so she began, that's when she began the, the road to being Reformed. Um, I grew up in First Pres, but I, when we weren't really involved. Uh, I, 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 my parents are very involved there now. Um, so I didn't really come out of First Pres knowing what Reformed meant. And so kind of the same with me. I became a Christian, and then I just started reading the Bible. I mean, I started at Genesis, and every night I would read the Bible, and, and I would see certain things, and they would kind of— I started to develop this hermeneutic on my own a little bit. And then when I started reading— John Piper or Packer or Stott and, and uh, Sproul, chosen by God, then it's like, okay, this makes a lot of sense, given the, what I understand of the Bible. And so that was, I was probably already on staff with Campus Crusade and in Italy when that began to happen. Uh, there's a, some influence of some older men at the same time in my life. Hi, I'm Karen Person. Um, you touched on this slightly a little bit before. You were talking about people in the church who were discerning and seeing things before you do. My question to you is, what, do you, what is your view on spiritual gifts? How would you incorporate that into the church as well as women and their spiritual gifts into the church? Good question. I do think there are spiritual gifts. I think people have, uh, and I, I think we can, we can take our understanding of that a little far. I mean, because we have these lists of giftings, and they're different. Um, I think it's hard to just say, here are the list of gifts, that's it. Uh, I, I mean, I think we're all, you know, there's just, 
Some are more apostolically driven. Some are more shepherded, shepherds by nature. Some uh, are more prophetic. In, in, and when I say prophetic, in their ability to really the, to discern what's going on in some heart and, and in someone's heart and bring the word of God to bear in a way that really convicts, that really changes, that really guides. Um, I think there are some people who are particularly gifted in their ability to serve and love and give of themselves, be hospitable. So there's all kinds of giftings. Um, and so, that you know, the challenge as an elder and a pastor, as a parent, I mean, we all to some extent have this challenge, is to be able to look at the people in our care, whether they're children, disciples, church members, whatever, Sunday school class, and to be able to see how has God uniquely equipped this person, because all of them can do something better than me. <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I look long enough, I, I'm, I'm convinced everybody I meet can do something better than me. And it blesses the church when, it blesses me, but it blesses the church when I can figure that out. And sometimes I'm not the most discerning. Sometimes I need to bring somebody like Michael Graham in to help me to see, you know, how, how is this person better than me? How is this person gifted? But I do think that God has uniquely equipped the church as a whole, um, again, because none of us are Jesus. And so, I, I, you know, th- this has gotten off track in a lot of ways and, and hijacked in some ways that I think take the glory off of Jesus and put the glory on us. So we have to be really careful about that. But I do believe the Holy Spirit does gift people in unique ways for the mission. That, that's the goal in the gifting. So the mission can be accomplished. Hi, Jim Doggin. Um, my question for you is, in your own opinion, what sets you apart as a pastor? Oh, that's not a fun question to ask. <laughs> I always, um, can I tell you what I think my wife would say? This is one of those I just punt to her. I, um, you know, God saved me at a later date than, than he did save my wife. And after making a whole lot of bad decisions, and the grace that I feel is really profound and in a way that almost makes my wife wish she didn't come to faith as an early age. Now, obviously, I, every time she's tempted to say that, I say that you, be glad you came to faith at an early age. I want my children to have her testimony, not mine. But there is something in the way God has saved me that makes me feel the grace in a way that um, maybe, you know, also aligned with uh, I, my personality tends to be all in or, or nothing. <laughs> and so you, you get these ways that I'm wired and then you combine it with the, the time and the way that he chose to save me. And... Um, and, and I think it does increase my motivation to see the mission go forward, my, my compassion for those who are making bad decisions, and my desire for them to know the grace of God. Hi, I'm Barb Haney. And I was just wondering, outside of church, what interests or hobbies do you have any that you would like to share? Well, I had lots of interests and hobbies before I had four kids in seminary. <laughs> uh, but the, but, but the, the arena of hobbies, that just lost my mic. That arena is opening back up to me. Uh, I used to like to hunt and fish. I grew up doing a lot of that in Central Florida. Um, my, my wife and I 
we in, really enjoy the gym that we go to. Um, I like reading. I like history. Um, I like good coffee. Um, we, we've really, we've enjoyed the opportunity we've had to travel through God having us in different parts of the world. My wife, she would go to bed, you know, before the internet really was taking off reading Rick Steves and, and, you know, she, she knew all, everything that was around us at all times. So that would be fun too. Hi, my name is Jared. And, um, I was just wondering what, what role do you see the international missionaries um, playing in the church as far as the church that's still here? That's a good question. Well, you know, in this context, the, the international missionary that has blessed me probably the most personally is Juddy, who y'all sent to plant a church in Salerno, Italy. We, did, we lived in Salerno with Juddy and Abby, you know, not with in the same apartment, but in the same town, laboring with Juddy and Abby. And Juddy has been an unbelievable source of, uh, of wisdom to me and, and a reminder of, of what the church is called to do. Because it, where he's called to serve in an area of such low fruit, he needs to be laser sharp on what the church is called to do. Here, where the fruit is, and it's not the Bible Belt like where I come from, but there's more fruit and there's more comfort. And so it's easy for us to get off track a little more. Angela and I have a friend, I think I talked about her last time I was here. She serves in, in arguably the most closed and most dangerous country in the world. And she came back recently and we had her speak on a Wednesday night and talk about what she's doing. And our, our church was ch- like changed. People still talk about hearing her speak about the mission that she's called to. And so that would be, you know, when, when missionaries are in town, the more that we can be exposed to what God is doing worldwide, it's going to change us. It's going to reinvigorate us for all parts of the mission that we're called to here. Hi, Jim. Michelle Keller. We met yes. earlier. What you've mentioned several times about your kids and wanting them to have the same testimony that Angela has, what are you all doing as parents with your kids? Are there books or catechisms that you're using with your kids to raise them up in the Lord? Great question. We, I mean, we've done, we do a lot of different things. Uh, I mean, I, um, maybe it's just my personality is not very mechanical. I like change, so we change things a lot. We have, we'll have seasons where we have the gospel project. We, we took a little, we, with permission, <laughs> took something from a restaurant that, you know, that holds the card, you know, the number, and we'll put it in there, and we process the gospel project. We have a, a children's devotion that we go through. We've used the Jesus Storybook Bible, Advent series, um, you know, but the thing that, obviously, that uh, th- those are all very helpful. Um, and, uh, and on the car ride to school, we've been memorizing the Westminster Confession. I choose the Westminster because that's what I had to memorize anyway for RTS. So <laughs> that's what my kids have been memorizing. Um, but really, in the discipleship of my kids, it's lying down in bed with them. It's coaching their baseball teams. It's, it's knowing them and knowing their hurts and their fears and, and being able to bring the gospel to bear. Um, and obviously, I want to shield them from harm, but knowing that ultimately they're going to be in the world. So, so, so how do I kind of help walk them into these things? And really with my 10-year-old now, I'm having to engage in some things that I'd prefer just to keep him from, <laughs> but I can't. And so we're having to talk more and more about real-life things. Um, and yeah, so just walks around the block, shooting baskets. That, that's where a lot of the 
those kind of conversations happen. Hi, I'm Rob Farnsley. Um, we met in Italy six years ago. Yes, we did. We uh-huh. have. I was with some friends the other day and just talking. I understand if you, this isn't the forum to answer, but these are the kind of questions we talk about. Uh, especially in light of Dawes, first question, and they've asked two, I've got two quickies. First one would be not, um, uh, and I realize you've just gone through 10 years at RTS and all that's involved with that, but in what does your life show that you value more? Not what the right answer is, but what your life shows you value more between love and knowledge. And then the second one would be, if you care to share, mm-hmm. tough to do here, what are some things that you might be afraid of these days? Those are good questions. Obviously, I pray. Yeah, well, I'm not probably the most capable to answer your first. I mean, I think the true answers come from those closest to me, and I hope they would say love. I, I mean, I really do. I, it's easy in the, you know, the beginnings of your biblical studies to enter the cage stage and be more infatuated with knowledge than love, um, not realizing that the biblical knowledge is meant to lead to love. So if there's no love, there's a deficiency in knowledge. Uh, my professor, Richard Pratt, said, he, he said he would call himself a flaming seven-point Calvinist. And he said, but every time somebody becomes a Calvinist, some young man, uh, he wants to lock them in the closet until they're ready to start talking about Jesus again. <laughs> and, and so I, 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 I've been guilty of, of being more infatuated with knowledge than love, but um, I pray those closest to me at this point would, would say that, that love is what's being presented and that the way that manifests itself, the things that are most important to me would be my family, my friends, the church. But that's just coming from me. I mean, they, they would be the true test. Um, and then the second part, fears. That's right. I really, I mean, as I have children and they get older, they become, I mean, the source of most of my fears. I mean, I'm moving them from, worldly speaking, a very safe place, <laughs> a quintessential SEC, small southern town where grandparents and cousins are still in the Bible belt. I'm leaving a very safe place for a very unsafe place, humanly speaking. And so that has brought about a lot of fears. Uh, and a lot of, ultimately, what those fears are of my own not trusting God. And so he's shown those things to me, and he's working me through them and my wife through them, but the majority of my fears would be that. Two last questions for this first two. Okay. David, and then David. Hi, I'm David Mudge. Um, one of the passions of my heart for this church for a long time has to, to see people saved. And uh, you know, I've seen baptism after baptismal service, and it's great to see kids saved. Um, but really very rarely ever see people who don't know Christ saved. And I've been in prayer for a very long time for this, and uh, my heart breaks for Orlando. So just wondering, uh, what is your philosophy for reaching lost people for Christ, and how does that fit into Orlando Grace in your mind? Good question. Well, I hope... Ten years on staff with an evangelistic organization communicates something about our desire for the lost to be saved. Um, 
obviously, you know, we're a part of the process, but we're not going to save anybody. The Holy Spirit is. But we're a real part of that process, a real part. And we, we need to really be trained, to really be equipped. Um, I, you know, Ephesians 4 seems to communicate clearly that the leadership of a church exists to equip the saints to be doing the ministry, the work of the ministry, not for us to create a lot of programs that will bring people in the doors, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so that's going to involve a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of prayer, a lot of discipleship. Um, it's going to involve discernment in people's giftings and, and what, fans, what flames do we really need to fan? Um, that, because most of you are equipped to do certain types of ministries better than me and in different ways, all of you in different ways than me. So the plan would be teaching the Bible in a way that would equip the saints, but that would also be understandable to an unbeliever who's really, um, and please don't take this as being like this really attractional thing, but just like, like communicating the gospel clearly is what I'm saying. Um, and then really getting to know each other and joining together to put, to do things in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Um, we have a guy in our church who every, every Thursday night, he has Taco, Taco Tuesday. And every, everybody in his neighborhood is welcome to come in. And, every, every, and they welcome all these different people in every Thursday, and they get to know them. And, and they're engaging with people that would never just come to church. So, you know, this culture in Orlando, even more than Oxford, we've kind of passed the day where largely we rely on getting people in the doors. It takes a lot of work before that that we need to be equipped to do. Uh, and so equipping's the hard work, and that's discipleship. Good morning. Uh, my name is David Brinkley, and I kind of have two similar related questions. Um, moving into a new area or newish for you can be very very challenging in the way of friendships and new places. My wife and I moved here about, I guess, nine, nine ten months ago. How do you and, and Angela plan on developing and cultivating those friendships um, that in an area that might be kind of new, especially to her? And related to that, um, I've been involved in churches where the pastor is kind of elevated to this level that, you know, you go to him for help and you don't really know them on a personal level. Um, and they don't have those kind of close friendships, accountability relationships with the sheep, if you will. So I guess, how do you plan on developing that? And is that going to be involved with the members of the church? Or is it just, you know, I'm not accountable to my own members? Good question. Well, I definitely think, well, Angela and I have, she has women in her life and I have men in my life. Who, who, who really know us, who really know us. I'm going through these people. They all happen to be members at Grace Bible Church right now, or at least attending Grace Bible Church. But, um, I, you know, and ideally that would be the case. Certainly, um, I would hope for a level of intimacy among the elders that would, I think that's going to be really necessary for me. Um, 
And, and I would love it if Angela's best friends were all a part of this church, but I wouldn't limit her in that way. I mean, I think there, a lot of our friendships are connected to who our children hang out with, um, and that's a reality. And I want my wife to have refreshing friendships, and if that comes from this church, great. If it doesn't, that's okay. Maybe that's a way to get more people in this church. <laughs> I don't know. But um, we need to have those things. We, we must have those things. And, you know, I was telling Michael right now, we're... Uh, we're in a season, it seems like, of goodbyes, and that's emotionally taxing. And so, I, I, you know, we're going to come in here and I, I think still be emo- emotionally taxed in some ways. And so I don't want to put the, especially, I, I don't want to put the expectation of my wife to, to swoop in and start making all these great friendships when she's still working through goodbye. And so I, I think it'll take time. But God, in every season of our life, has been faithful to us to provide, in every season, dear, dear friends. And I, I have every expectation that he'll do that in this season as well. But we need that. And that will be one of the main things we're praying for. And if you want to pray for us, that would be a great thing to pray for us too. I'm going to serve you, tell you to go to the booth right now. They're going to fix this annoying thing for you (laughs) so it doesn't distract you. And maybe you'll have a chance to run to the restroom if you need to before the service and not get entirely swamped right away. But the second part of this, for those of you who can stay, will take place after the service in um, rather spontaneous, impromptu. We just figured this out with the help of some great input from a covenant member this week to do a, a part two. So if you can stay and uh, grab your, if you brought your lunch, great. If you want to go grab it real quick, I think Jim can be here till almost 2.30. one forty-five. okay. So that will give us some more time. And I just want to say how proud I am of all of you. That would be so helpful. I, I am proud of this congregation for the kinds of questions you brought and for how you've deferred to one another to allow yes. many questions.